From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Wyoming is a mysterious and magical place. The very word conjures up visions of rough-hewn buildings, horses, and wide-open spaces. Preservation seems a natural fit in that majestic setting, and today's guest is plying the craft and trade of preservation in Jackson, Wyoming, as the director of the National Park Service's Western Center for Historic Preservation. So tighten your girth and slacken your reins. We're headed to Wyoming to talk preservation, Western style, on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, this is Nick Redding, the host of PreserveCast, and before today's episode, I want to ask you to consider making a quick donation to support the program. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and during difficult times like these, every dollar helps. Your support keeps us on the air, making the case for the value, relevance, and importance of history in our lives, and we all greatly appreciate it. To make a donation, you can visit PreserveCast.org and hit the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the page. Thanks for all your help, and keep on preserving. Now, let's get back to the episode. Catherine Wanson is the director of the National Park Service's Western Center for Historic Preservation, the new western branch of the Historic Preservation Training Center. Catherine is based out of Moose, Wyoming, and came to the center from Grand Teton National Park in 2014, where she served as the Cultural Resources Specialist. Catherine currently serves as an advisory board member for the Alliance for Historic Wyoming and the president of the Teton County Historic Preservation Board. Catherine received her master's degree from Columbia University in Historic Preservation in 2008 and an advanced certificate from the University of Pennsylvania in 2011. Outside of her work hours, she enjoys introducing her two young children to the mountain sports that first drew her to Wyoming in 2003. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're very excited to have Catherine Wanson with us, who is the director of the National Park Service's Western Center for Historic Preservation, the new Western branch of the Historic Preservation Training Center. Uh, And we're excited to talk about what it's like to be a preservationist uh, out in uh, the West and all the good things that come with that and her path to this career. But before we get started, we, we always love to talk a little bit with our guests and find out where they grew up and what got them interested in this field of work. Um, and then I guess sort of connected to that, how you ended up in Wyoming. So Catherine, um, where are you from and, and how did you get on this crazy path to being the head of this really cool training center out in Wyoming? All right. So I grew up in a small town in Northern New Jersey and it's a very old town. It's back to uh, the Revolutionary War. And that actually has a lot to do, I think, with my interest in historic preservation, though I had no idea it was a, a career field as a kid. Um, my parents also took us uh, on a lot of vacations that involved historic sites. So we used to go to Williamsburg, Virginia twice a year. And I remember going into New York City and going to South Street Seaport. Um, and I was that kid that would wear period costumes and uh, beg to buy the replica historic toys in the gift shop. So my parents probably should have seen this coming, but um, it was just kind of an, an innate interest from, from a small age. Um, then the story gets a little, little off path from historic preservation. I um, went to college in central New York and decided after working on my uh, thesis for art history my senior year, I was burned out and I just wanted to move out west. Got in my car, drove to... Um, 
Aspen first, didn't like that, then Steamboat Springs, and then finally ended up in Jackson and just fell in love with uh, Jackson, Wyoming, and taught skiing and uh, waited tables uh, for a couple years. And at the very end of that, I started working for an art dealer, and I'd been an art history major, and I thought that was my path. And that career wasn't really stacking up to what, what I thought I wanted. And so in the early days of Google, I got on, um, on Google and I, I searched for alternative careers for art history majors. And of the top five hits, there was historic preservation. And I started reading about what a historic preservationist does. And it just, it hit me over the head. I had no idea this was a profession, even after all those years of going to Williamsburg. And I just, I said, you can get paid to do this. And so I applied to a bunch of schools and I ended up at Columbia. And I remember the first day of school, we sat around in a circle and everyone in the class had to say, you know, kind of what brought them to uh, the program. And it was like sitting through an AA meeting, just hearing everyone's confessions that were, you know, identical to my own childhood um, of having to be dragged out of the historic house museum because you wanted to stay longer and those kind of things. And just really really felt like I had found my calling. Um, and I feel really lucky that at a pretty young age, you know, my mid twenties, I discovered um, my people and what I was supposed to be doing. And my career took off from there. That is, we've asked this question a lot. This is like episode, I don't know, it's going to be 145 or something like that. Um, that is one of the most circuitous routes <laughs> to get to preservation. And it's a fantastic, like that's a, that's a story that's worth like, I hope you've written this story to pass on to the descendants, you know, so that they can be like great grandma, Catherine used Google to find preservation. Like that's, that is a really, really cool story and a cool story about how you ended up because you're not from Wyoming and how yep. you ended up there. And then I guess you went to class at Columbia in New York and then came back to Jackson. Yes. So another kind of funny story. So I'd moved out to Jackson, met a bunch of friends here and five of us ladies from Jackson, not originally from Jackson, but we're living out here together, teaching skiing and working in restaurants, decided to move to New York City together. So we had an apartment on the Upper West Side, uh, which we considered our little Jackson Haven and we could, you know, huddle together and miss the mountains together. Uh, so every summer break, every Christmas break, I would go back to Jackson. Uh, my brother had moved out here with me um, in 2003 when I first moved out here. So he was still in Jackson. And so I can still consider it home. When I graduated um, from Columbia, I came out here because I decided I wanted to Jackson to be unemployed on my brother's couch instead of on my parents' couch in New Jersey. I applied for all jobs back east because in my, in my head, you know, the only preservation jobs are on the coast. And I just, I stumbled into an internship. I don't even remember how with the Western Center for Historic Preservation as a National Center or National Council for Preservation Education intern. Um, so yeah, Jackson, I always considered home, but after grad school, I assumed I would be living back east somewhere. Interesting. And I think that that's a, you know, something we can maybe get into a little bit, how there is this perspective that uh, preservation is an East Coast or, or or a West Coast, but a coastal thing, and that when you enter the the the, the hinterlands there in the in the in between, um, there is some preservation being done there. But there is, and but it, it's also different though, um, and it takes on different forms and is a a different skill set or a different um, you know some something that's unique unto itself, um, and that's really cool and something for us to talk about here in a second. So um, maybe. Uh, for people who aren't familiar, who are listening, since we're talking about Wyoming and stuff like that, and before we dive into the Western Center and the work that you do there and preservation in the West in general, um, for people unfamiliar with Wyoming, 
Um, and I have to say, I've actually never been to Wyoming. So I guess maybe I'm, I'm of that. Um, what's it like to live there? Describe maybe where you live, um, landscape, population. Obviously, you fell in love with this place because you went out, you moved around, found that place, left, came back. So you've settled there, um, have family there now. So what is it like to live out in Wyoming and what kind of a place is it? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about Wyoming, uh, similar to a lot of misconceptions about New Jersey, I will say. Um, and are they misconceptions, I, Catherine? About, uh, no, yes, they are. <laughs> I'm sorry, for, in, all in of our, country. for all of our New Jersey listeners, I apologize for that comment. <laughs> uh, but there are just as many about Wyoming. Um, maybe I have a thing for living in misunderstood places. Yeah. But, um, but I, so I live in Jackson, Wyoming, which a lot of people call Jackson Hole. And just for clarification, the whole part is the whole valley. And it is a, it's a geographic or geologic feature of kind of the sinking hole and the rising mountains. So if you want to sound local, don't, um, don't say you live in Jackson Hole, you live in Jackson, Wyoming. Hmm. Uh, yeah, fun, fun distinction. Um, and it's a gateway community to Grand Teton National Park and just above Grand Teton is Yellowstone. So if you want to kind of picture generally the part of the state we're in, we're in the northwest corner. So our community has about, I don't know, 25,000 or so people. So pretty small town. Um, but you have to contrast that with the fact that Wyoming is the least populated state in the lower 48. And it has six people per square mile, about a half million people in the whole state. Um, so it's Jackson and Wyoming in general, especially coming from New Jersey. Uh, I would say one, one thing to know about it, it is, it is, there's a lot of open space and not a ton of people. Um, I would say Jackson, I was going to say, is Jackson one of the biggest, would that make it one of the biggest cities in Wyoming? Um, no, we have larger cities, Casper, Cheyenne, Laramie, um, that are kind of our metropolises, but that's a relative term. Uh, and how and I, far apart are are you from those? Very far. So I used to be on the National Register Review Board for Wyoming and the drives you would have to do. I mean, I think I drove to Buffalo, Wyoming, which is 10 hours away. Um, Laramie is seven. Cheyenne is eight or nine. Uh, so things are really spread out, which is a problem for statewide nonprofits, for example, um, when you have that much geography to cover. And, um, but I would say also about Wyoming, it's a place of extremes. Um, you know, in the winter, it can be as, as cold as negative 30 degrees and it can be as warm as 90 degrees in the summer. You've got these jagged, dramatic uh, mountains and the landscape in general contrasted with these really open plains. Um, you have everything from kind of the old school Wyoming ranching families. And then in places like Jackson, you have these, you know, really hip second homeowners. Um, so it's, it's a place of a lot of contrast. Um, and the other thing about the population too, is that only 3% of the County is privately owned. The rest of it is public space. So in that 3%, um, you have this kind of intense environment of development and competing needs because you have, you know, the population just kind of, there's nowhere to go. You can't go out. So everything kind of gets um, hashed out in this tiny little uh, town. Interesting, and such a such a contrast to you know where I live or where you used to live, um, a very different place. And maybe we can talk a little bit about now your work there, which is directly connected to all of that which you described, and and obviously the history of that place is tied up in all of that story. But 
so you're the director of the Western Center for Historic Preservation. Um, and we can, we're going to talk about the center and the work that you do, but how did it end up in Wyoming in particular? How did it end up in Jackson? So a lot of people are surprised that we have a training center in Jackson, Wyoming, because it's a very remote place. We do have an airport, but it's an expensive airport to fly into. So, you know, there are logical um, other places such as Salt Lake City or Denver that you might have a Western Center for Historic Preservation. But there's a, a, a neat story to how the center ended up in Jackson and in Grand Teton National Park. And you kind of have to know a little bit of background on the Park Service. Um, up until 1978, when there was this thing called the Redwood Amendment passed, park managers, superintendents managed their parks as either natural parks, historical parks, or recreational parks. And they really managed for just that resource. And so if you were in a natural park and you had historic sites, you felt um, you felt okay tearing down uh, historic structures, despite the fact that that did not meet the Organic Act um, and the, the whole creation of the Park Service. But they had really segregated parks into these different types of units. So the Redwood Amendment in 1978 makes it clear that, no, you're going to manage for all resource types, that there will be no kind of lowering of the standards of national parks just because of the type of park, the, the primary resource you have. And unfortunately, um, as many laws and as many many things go like this, just because the act was passed did not mean that managers immediately responded to it. So into the 80s and 90s in, in big Western nat nat natural, I'll put it in scare quotes, parks, you still had managers um, that saw historic sites as a blight on the landscape and as detracting from the natural quality. And while they might not, um, you know, overtly bulldoze a historic site because they knew it was less listed in the National Register and NHPA would protect it, um, they often would let these places just go unmaintained and it would be um, benign neglect, essentially. And the National Trust for Historic Preservation was uh, very uh, hip to this phenomenon. And in particular, in Grand Teton National Park, they, they had a couple superintendents that were pretty... Uh, bold and obvious about these decisions. And so it drew the spotlight, um, particularly from the National Trust. And so the, the story goes that um, Barb Paul from the Western Office of the National Trust assembled the new park superintendent at Grand Teton, who did actually you know, have a background in cultural resources and came from some battlefield park at, parks, I believe, and the uh, regional director and the president of the National Trust. And they went on a tour around all of I shouldn't say all, some of the 45 historic districts in Grand Teton National Park. And they made their last stop, the Whitegrass Dude Ranch, which is the current location of our training center. And um, it sounds like uh, a nonprofit director's dream, I think, that, you know, a plan, everything went according to plan in that by the time they completed this tour and saw, you know, the condition of all of these amazing resources, it hit you over the head by the last resource that, wow, we've got to do something. And so the story goes that the regional director uh, proposed that the ranch be turned into a training center for historic preservation, particularly of rustic Western architecture, to build capacity within the Park Service to take care of these resources that have been essentially let go. And that is how the idea for the Western Center for Historic Preservation was born. And the National Trust uh, partnered with the Park Service to raise the funds for the rehabilitation of the ranch, which took about 10 years. Uh, and then it was up to the Park Service to actually operate the Western Center for Historic Preservation, which is the phase we're in now. Um, it is completely a Park Service initiative. How big is the, how big is the ranch? We have 13 buildings. 
and I, because the park is the park and, you know, there are no boundaries. Um, historically, I believe it was about 600 acres, um, okay. but you know, everything kind of just bleeds into the park now. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the work that's done there now. I mean, it's an interesting sort of origin story because it, it directly comes about because these types of resources weren't being protected and there were challenges associated with that, um, which is not how all training centers come about. It's sort of an interesting origin story in contrast, even with um, the Historic Preservation Training Center here in Maryland, which comes about as, as a result of hurricanes, basically. So it was sort of resource destruction in a different way. Um, but... Um, who do you educate? Um, how can people get engaged? Can people visit? Um, what, what's going on on a day-to-day basis? And then I suppose maybe where are you guys headed moving forward since you're relatively young in, in the history of preservation? Yes. So I'll answer that question uh, pretending it were a typical year as far as um, what's going right. on and who we, who we educate. We've had to suspend in-person trainings for the summer, but uh, typically we provide about 18 workshops a year of our best preservation workshop series and best stands for brick, earth, stone, and timber. And those workshops focus on training and education on preservation trade skills. And while our primary audience are crafts workers, um, we find because we include a lot of material science, construction history, architectural history, uh, we get a lot of attendance by professionals and managers and others. And so about 80% of our 350 people we train a year, and that's an average, uh, are federal participants. And then about 20% are non-federal trainees. And we do about half of our trainings at Whitegrass Dude Ranch, the rehabilitated dude ranch that now acts as our overnight lodging and classroom space. And then the rest of them we do all over the country, mostly in national parks, but we actually do some outside of national parks as well. And as far as getting engaged, um, we've got some good social media presence and also on the web. And so the best way to get engaged, uh, I think, is just uh, signing up for a course and joining that way. But we also take volunteers at the ranch to do hands-on work. Um, and then we have interns every year for the center to help us um, execute our training mission. And then as far as visitation, um, it is open to the public. You have to walk up on your own two feet unless you are staying at the ranch, um, just to limit the number of cars we have up there. But we had about 150 people drop into the ranch and just wander around. And if the caretaker is there, he'll He'll greet you and take you on a tour. That's pretty cool. And when people come there to take these classes, they stay there? Yes. So they stay for the length of the class, no longer, no longer than the class. I mean, in that um, this is not an excuse for a fun vacation, but they certainly uh, get a chance to get out and see the park during the class. And I should also mention about our classes we're really um, focused on experiential education and we're really trying to understand adult learners. And, you know, a lot of the people that sign up for the classroom, were not your typical classroom learners or sign up for the trainings. We're not your typical classroom learners. And so finding ways to teach using their hands and kind of minimizing the amount of PowerPoint. Um, and we can still teach academic concepts, but try to teach it um, in a more engaging experiential way. I mean, I think it's important for people to understand that it is a very experiential type program um, and it is offered all, I mean, the focus being on what happens out there at the ranch, but then obviously you are doing this all across the country as well. And and maybe before we take a break here, we can mention the relationship with the Historic Preservation Training Center um, based out of Frederick, Maryland. So you guys now are connected in some way. Do you want to describe that and maybe kind of explain how the how the connection 
how it all works and how it's going to help things moving forward? Yes. So we, as, as I told from our origin story, we started as this grassroots preservation center, which was a blessing and a curse um, in that we were just part of Grand Teton in the beginning. Grand Teton National Park. And so we had no association with all these other training centers across the park service. So we were kind of um, out, out in our Western outposts, uh, developing our own things, doing our own thing. Uh, and without boring people on the bureaucratic side, we eventually became part of the regional office, which gave us some more visibility and a little bit more connectivity to the other training centers across the park service. But it wasn't until this year when we uh, became part of the Historic Preservation Training Center which is an official training center across the park service and has access to kind of learning and development um, tools and facilities and all sorts of things that being a little grassroots organization as part of Grand Teton National Park, we never had. So this has been an amazing growth year in that we are now part of the national landscape of preservation training and education for the park service and are in the conversations and in the rooms that we need to be in to have the impact we want to have. Um, I learned a lot from being grassroots and kind of starting local and using, you know, scrapping together all the resources we could. Our first training year, we had 85 students in five classes and there were bats, you know, still in the building, um, making droppings on instructors while teaching. I mean, it was really uh, a typical startup, I think, but I finally feel like we're in a place uh, where we have the resources we need to to grow the center uh, in a way that it that it can. Yeah, in a way that it can and the way that it, that it deserves to be because you guys are doing such great work in a way that the country needs um, at a really critical moment. Because I mean, sort of the background of this conversation is that through Preservation Maryland's relationship with the Historic Preservation Training Center and Moss Rudley there, um, we've been able to connect and have been really impressed by all the work that's going on at the Western Center and just see it as like part of this bigger landscape and bigger part of the conversation happening right now about how do we accelerate trades development. Um, which has been something I feel like people have been dancing around for a long time, and now it's time to to literally make it happen. So um, let's take a quick break here. When we come back, let's talk about um, another sort of partnershipy thing, which is the Harrison Goodall Fellowship and how that all got off the ground uh, and what that's funding its first year and how there's going to be more funding moving forward. And we'll talk about that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about the fearless leader of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association, Emma Maddox-Funk, read by Casey Roan, the primary researcher of Maryland's historic context statement on the state's suffrage legacy. Emma Maddox-Funk, leader of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association. After decades of an anti-suffrage political climate in the years following the Civil War, the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association emerged as the state's first successful statewide suffrage group. 
1889, Caroline Hallowell Miller gathered a small group of her friends and neighbors in Sandy Spring as the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association. When the Baltimore City Suffrage Club formed in 1894, both groups reorganized under the umbrella of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association. A statewide movement had begun. The Maryland Women's Suffrage Association moved forward cautiously. Wary of provoking opposition, they focused on organizing their members and educating the public. They considered but ultimately decided against a letter-writing or a petitioning campaign and rejected encouragement from national leaders to contest their legal right to vote in court. In 1904, the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association elected a new president, Emma Maddox Funk, who had led the Baltimore City Suffrage Club since 1898. Funk was a Baltimore native and a graduate of Eastern High School, and she had earned a reputation as a talented musician and singer. She described herself as a lifelong supporter of equal rights, who had been transformed into a suffrage activist during two years spent in homebound convalescence. She passed the time by reading suffrage literature, and when she emerged, she immediately sought out other Baltimore women engaged in the movement. One of her major achievements as Maryland Women's Suffrage Association president was successfully lobbying the National American Women's Suffrage Association, known as NASA, to bring their 1906 annual national convention to Maryland. The Lyric Theater in Baltimore hosted the convention from February 7th to 13th in 1906. The gathering convened thousands of suffragists from across the country for a program of speeches, prayer services, musical performances, and club meetings. Attendees witnessed an important milestone, the transition in leadership from the movement's founders to the next generation. Susan B. Anthony, who was elderly and in poor health at the convention, used her remarks to urge the assembled young women to carry on the movement. She passed away just a month later. Her oration at the Lyric was one of the last times that she spoke in public. The Baltimore Convention was a pivotal moment that spurred new leaders and new groups to emerge. Not all of these new leaders agreed with the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association's conservative approach, but Funk continued to pursue patient persuasion and attempts to bring statewide suffrage legislation before the Maryland General Assembly. After the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, Emma Maddox Funk continued her political engagement and advocated for women's rights and made two unsuccessful attempts to run for office. Funk's legacy lies in her stewardship of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association through the critical years of the early 20th century, which brought thousands of Maryland women into political and civic life for the first time. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Catherine Wanson, who is the director of the Western Center for Historic Preservation. Before we took our break, we've been talking about all things related to their work, how the center got started, where they're headed in this uh, exciting national partnership that they have, and really an elevation of their profile to where it deserves to be over the coming years. Um, and before we did that, we we I, I mentioned before we took our break that um, we wanted to talk about the the Goodall um, Fellowship and Harrison Goodall, who, um, if you're really interested in Harrison, which you should be, you can listen to a previous episode of Preserve Cast because we had a chance to get him on and talk to him about all things historic trades and the amazing work that he's done over the years. Um, 
But he's also, in addition to being a really kind and genuinely wonderful human being, also very philanthropic and generous and has established a fellowship um, that the Western Center is sort of taking the lead on on the federal side. You want to talk about what that is, what you guys are funding and um, where, where this is headed? Sure. And I think I want to put that in context of where the center is heading. Um, and this is just one program that kind of represents this larger nationwide kind of landscape level involvement we now have in preservation education, because as part of uh, the Historic Preservation Training Center merger, um, we are now working on other programs beyond just the best preservation training uh, workshops, um, like feeder programs, um, such as the Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program and multi-year NPS workforce development programs like the Preservation and Skills Training Program. And the list goes on and on now of the things we're doing beyond just the workshops. And the Goodall Preservation Fellowship is the thing I'm probably most excited about right now, especially in that it continues uh, despite many changes to how we can train and get together in person right now. The fellowship is something that um, is not affected by that. And so it's really a bright spot in my workday, um, in my career um, to work on that. And so, yeah, to talk about it, whew, we had um, 90 applicants and uh, we were able to select three really wonderful fellows for this year as our, as our inaugural year of putting this together. And as those that listened to Harrison Goodall's um, episode know, um, his intent and the intent we're trying to follow, Preservation Maryland and the Historic Preservation Training Center and Western Center for Historic Preservation, was that preservation changed his life and he would like to help make that happen for someone else. And so we're, we were looking for projects that show innovation and also show a little bit of boost that someone needs in a career, sometimes to work on something that isn't, you know, directly in their day-to-day uh, -day job, but is something that's like a passion and a seed project uh, that they want to see take off. And Harrison's also really focused on the importance of mentors in your career and not just, you know, one-on-one -on -one mentorships, but also kind of a community of practice and those that can help you along um, that we're not all working in a vacuum. Um, so the three we picked, we really felt um, honored that intent. Uh, so we have Sarah Stratty, and she has a project looking at non-destructive evaluation techniques for modeling, <clears throat> excuse me, seismic damage on adobe structures. And she's working out of California, um, out of Channel Islands. So that is obviously a very important topic there. And she's able to take a lot of the work that was done on masonry structures that have not been applied to adobe because it's just a less common building type. <clears throat> um, Danielle Ellis. She has a pro uh, project focused on documentation of coastal Alaskan cemeteries and really an amazing project there where there is a cemetery that is being eroded by uh, the movement of a riverbank and um, really no easy options. And so the documentation and working with Native Alaskan groups and um, the Russian Orthodox Church and all sorts of interesting players uh, to figure out that to, to be just one of the players in uh, that project. And then lastly, uh, Chris Cody out of Arizona is developing a regulatory toolkit for combating demolition by neglect, which is one of uh, apparently Arizona's leading preservation issues. Um, and he is a lawyer by training. And so he is in a great position to combine preservation and law and figure out regulatory tools. 
Yeah, so these are pretty awesome projects. We're actually planning on having all of them um, with their own episode on PreserveCast. That's part of our are part of our fellowship plan of, of promoting what they're doing and kind of giving them the, the, that larger audience um, and creating that community of mentors that I think um, Harrison sort of envisioned. Um, and so we'll be talking with them in depth, but I, I think it's a really great um, sort of snapshot of the exciting things that are being funded and that will be um, supported by the Western Center. Um, and I should mention too, even though these were all Western um, focused, it, it was it, it is it is national in its scope. So you can be a preservationist anywhere and be funded. We just we figured we would throw the the, the West a bone this one time. We'd let Catherine get her way and fund everything out west. Um, but eventually, uh, we'll find somebody with something unique happening on the East Coast. So, um, but we're super excited about it in all seriousness, and and some really really cool um, projects on the horizon. And I'm glad you were able to kind of tease those. Um, episodes, we'll, which we'll probably have as these projects get underway in uh, 2021. Um, so I, I wanted to do some rapid fire questions. We do this on some um, preserve casts and kind of just throw some some questions at you um, here. Uh, and these are our Western preservation style uh, rapid fires. So favorite type of building unique to your region? You can define your region in any way you'd like. All right, I'm gonna have to cheat and give you a real building and and a fictional building. It's not okay. fictional; it actually existed, but I've never seen it. Uh, so my favorite building type that I do see are these is Tudor architecture in Wyoming towns. It it is just seems so strange to me that Tudor made it out west, and it just looks so out of place. So I appreciate a good. Uh, usually, there are like hotels and downtown buildings, not so much housing types. Um but I'd like to know more about these buildings and uh, they use logs sometimes. So they're, they're not your usual Tudor style. I love that. That's really, that's interesting. Isn't it? I, the phenomenon needs to be studied. Um, and then the one that is, it's not, it's fictional to me because I've never seen it in person because they don't tend to last are old Saudis. Um, the walls were made with sod blocks, if you will. And they were the first structures that people, um, when they first arrived to a place, would build. They were not, I mean, they're not permanent because they eventually uh, erode away. Um, but I've seen really neat photographs of them. I've never encountered one in person. You've never encountered one in person? No. Have they, are, are they recreated anywhere? There must be sites that recreate. It sounds you know, like I great... might need to Google it since I'm so good at Google, clearly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, either where I can go on a on a pilgrimage to a Saudi site. Yeah, either that, or it sounds like it could be a fun activity for the kids. Burn off a little energy, you know. Well, Get out there and dig a, some sod. Absolutely, it could make a great training activity that we make people build Saudis. Yeah, yeah, the best sod class. I'm signed up. I'm ready. I'm there. Biggest challenge to preservation in the West, and and I don't know how you even possibly answer this, but but you could also say Wyoming but specifically one that would surprise an East Coast preservationist? Because we all face similar things, but are there things happening out West that are just, or, I mean, you 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 grew up on the East Coast, so you know where we come from, and now you you have lived out there long enough to see the challenges there. Are there, are there challenges unique to the West that people should think about or should be aware of? Yes, and like you say, because I came from the East, it, it actually is easy for me to see what is surprising and different, and I'm still hitting my head up against a wall. And it's outside of the Park Service, thankfully, this challenge that I'm thinking of. But um, And it's maybe specific to Wyoming, but I think there's some other Western states that deal with this as well. Uh, just 
very long standing um private property rights um more than a belief um but just you know kind of legal footing and regulatory framework uh that can run counter to local preservation ordinance development for example um and then i would also say this this under this again belief is maybe not the right word but uh an approach to history that 20th century historic structures should not be considered historic, that history is something that happens on the coasts or in Europe or elsewhere in the world, I should say. Um, a real mental block that the structures that someone's grandparents built could not possibly be worthy of preservation. And to try to convince locals that are from families that homesteaded here that their history is what we are trying to preserve. I mean, you get, you get laughed at, you get scoffed at of, no, this was my grandfather's house. You don't preserve my grandfather's house. Um, in fact, we were quoted, I, I'm involved in preservation in the community as well. And there was um, an old timer whose grandparents had developed the block we were trying to save. And we ultimately did save. Um, and he was the first to say, you know, it's a shame to see it go, but obviously nothing can be done. And, you know, I read, obviously nothing can be done as a preservationist from elsewhere and said, no, not obviously nothing can be done. Something can be done. Um, so that's, that's really hard when it's, especially because it's coming from the people whose history you are trying to preserve, um, that it's not in their kind of mental model that you would preserve that type of history. Yeah, it's interesting. We get a taste for that here, obviously, when it comes to mid-century modern. Yes. Um, or or resources even more recent, right? I mean, technically, something built in 1970 could be eligible for the National Register. And when you say that to some people, the, the immediate response is not scoffing, it's laughter. Like, are you <laughs> insane? Like, we're not preserving something from the 70s. But... Um, you know, there's there's a lot of value to that. Um, so that that's that's an interesting um, perspective, and interesting that people wouldn't see the value in that history when so many people flock to these places um, to see that kind of thing. Um, imagine if we had a couple Saudis left. <laughs> um, so, all right, last rapid fire here: most overlooked Western Wyoming historic resource you wish people knew more about. All right. First thing that comes to mind is something called a drift. Are you familiar with the drift? No, Nick? no. Okay. I, I apparently I have overlooked it. I didn't think you. I think I thought it might be in the category of a Saudi. Now I have seen a drift, um, and there is one when I was on the National Register Review Board uh, in Wyoming that we um, recommended for listing, and that was the Green River Drift, and it's a 58 mile cattle drift used since the 1890s. And this is basically a, a linear resource that moves through private and public property that they move the cattle from their spring desert feeding grounds to their summer forest grounds. And the reason it's called a drift is when it starts getting chilly, the cattle on their own begin to drift south back to their warmer feeding grounds. Uh, and it's amazing. It consists of all sorts of shoots and you know ways to kind of guide the cattle. Um, but it is something that you've never back east or you know coming from somewhere else you it's hard to imagine this type of resource and it's it's so symbolic symbolic uh it's it's just such a quintessentially uh wyoming resource to me um and it we got some pushback on the idea of nominating something as kind of loose as a drift i mean it is a place where animals travel. Um, it does have some physical structures to it, but, um, you know, coming from some 
more of a solid building background and, and people that are used to seeing buildings nominated. That was a, it was an interesting process. So this is more along the lines of, you would call this a cultural landscape? Yes. Oh, and it was the first uh, TCP nominated in Wyoming, I believe. Oh, no, it's the first TCP associated traditional cultural property associated with ranching history. That is there its claim go. to fame. Yep. Well, definitely overlooked and something we will uh, we'll look up. Maybe we can find a, uh, a drift historian to talk to in the future. <laughs> um, and is it is it that time of the year that you would start drifting? I, I believe right now the leaves are changing. So I'm going to say, yeah, it's probably drift time. Get al- get along, little doggies. It's time to drift. <laughs> so um, how can people get in touch with you or the center? Where's the best place to find you guys? Uh, so a great email address that's easy to remember is whitegrassranch at nps.gov. And that'll help you remember our lovely uh, dude ranch training facility. Um, you can also give us a call or find us. Um, we're all over the place on the web. And I'm always happy to talk to uh, new pieces, people interested in preservation. Well, just just do like Catherine and Google it, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, toughest question before you go, um, your favorite historic place or site? <sighs> Easy, right? Yeah, I know. That's just not fair. Okay, I have a thing for historic plumbing. Now, Don't we all? <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like the least desirable thing in the world because obviously it doesn't work very well. But when I see a historic site that still has, you know, the original toilet and an old sink and some old pipes in there, even if they're out of use, I get really excited because to me, that's authenticity. I mean, it didn't even get monkeyed with enough for someone to upgrade the toilet. So the first place that comes to mind that, uh, or the most recent place I've seen that was Scotty's Castle in um, Death Valley. Uh, They still have the big old toilet tank that's, you know, four feet above uh, the ground and you, you know the old-fashioned pole and everything like that and i it just tickled me it's my answer and i'm sticking to it <laughs> it's a great answer it's a great place to end the conversation and also i mean my house was built in 48 1948 that is we have original plumbing if you'd ever out this <gasps> way and you want to take a look at it you'd be welcome in oh that um, that is enticing <laughs> Yeah, and if and if anyone listening has original Pullman, get in touch. Get a picture to Catherine. She wants to see it. Um, this has been so much fun and so interesting to talk with you about the work that you're doing and looking forward to hearing more. And we'll be chronicling that work um, in some ways through looking at the Goodall uh, Fellowship uh, award winners for this, for this year ahead. And then also, um, I'm sure we'll return to Wyoming at some point in the future and talk more about your work. Um, but thank you so much and be well. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.